Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. I am your host and resident nerd, Aaron. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out the Substack. There we have show notes for each episode that contain relevant links to papers and articles used in research for the episode, as well as links to my more metaphysical woo-woo newsletter, The Moonbeam Mirror. I also want to encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the podcast with your friends. Let's build a community of weirdos together. Today, I am drinking on a Yingling. It's not my favorite, but it is probably my favorite light beer. And I say this as a dark beer drinker. I really cannot stand like uh, the actual light beers. So to me, Yingling is my warm weather light beer, which is ridiculous when I say it out loud, but that's how I feel. All right, so this week I want to investigate blood type, specifically the rhesus factor, which is the plus or minus part of your blood type. There's a fair amount of talk in the conspiracy community about rhesus negative blood being alien derived or something of that nature. I want to dip into that rabbit hole, especially as someone who does not readily believe in little gray aliens and such, but I also want to investigate as someone who has had my own life experience related to this. Um, My parents have a positive and a negative blood. My entire childhood, we understood me as having a positive blood. I was tested as an infant, of course, and my mom distinctly remembers the doctor saying she needed the Rogam injection because she was rhesus negative and I was rhesus positive. I remember testing my own blood type in ninth grade biology and confirming I had a positive and having that also verified by my teacher, by the way, Um, for those of you who think I might have just done it wrong. But then at 17, I fell gravely ill with some mysterious illness. Um, Honestly, it was really never properly diagnosed and it kind of miraculously resolved itself a decade later after I tried nearly every therapy available, Western and alternative alike. Um, So then at 21, I gave blood for the first time for community service hours in college. And all of a sudden, I had a negative blood. I genuinely thought that the Red Cross volunteer was an idiot, (laughs) full disclosure, Um, because between me testing my blood type and them testing my blood type, I'm betting on me being correct. I just am. Um, But then when I got pregnant, a routine blood type test told me that I was a negative. I still didn't believe it. I actually, I explained the whole thing. And the midwife, bless her heart, offered to test it again. But sure enough, the lab came back a second time with a negative. I followed that up with a request for Rogam, even though my husband has O negative blood, because I was convinced that my own DNA, and still am convinced, by the way, that my own DNA could give me a positive child even though I am no longer presenting that way. 
Uh, thankfully, they didn't push back on that request. Actually, their policy is now to give the first dose of Rogam to all rhesus-negative mothers, regardless of the father's blood type, because too many women were getting pregnant by men who weren't the person they claimed was the father. Um, and then obviously the second shot is happens when the baby comes out and they're able to test the baby, um, the baby's blood type to determine if the mother needs that shot or not. But the first one happens while you're pregnant and they don't know yet what the, uh, what the baby's blood type would be. So I don't know if they believed my story at the midwives or they thought I was cheating on my husband. Um, my baby was born with O negative blood like her father, which tells me nothing of my own DNA because of my mixed rhesus heritage. Uh, I would be expected to be, you know, a plus minus even if I had that positive. But I swear to you, like, I don't care that healthcare professionals will tell you it is impossible. My rhesus factor changed. And I'm not the only one. If you search my blood type changed on the internet, you'll find others. Um, you won't find people changing between A, B, A, B, or O. That does seem genetically fixed, but there are plenty of stories of people changing from rhesus positive to rhesus negative, and even from rhesus negative to rhesus positive, which shouldn't be possible based on the genetic model. When it first happened to me, I thought I had like switched timelines or something just crazy, and this was some Mandela effect. Uh, I mean, it's not the first time I've been a medical anomaly in my life, but switching timelines honestly seemed like a more valid explanation given how crazy doctors look at me when I tell them that my rhesus factor changed. The more I read other people's stories, though, the more I accepted that this was possible and the more I actually questioned whether the rhesus factor was genetically determined, like they say, considering it seems more malleable based on the people's stories. So to give a little bit of background on the rhesus factor, I am going to read to you from my Encyclopedia Britannica. This is a hard copy uh, passed down from my grandfather, um, but I'm gonna tell you it's 1961, okay? So it's not the most up-to-date information, but it will give you a basis um, to go on. And then also I will be attempting to change some of the racial terms as we go. Okay. So this factor was discovered when the blood of a rhesus monkey was injected into guinea pigs and rabbits. These animals responded by developing an anti-monkey agglutinating, agglutinating substance in their blood serums, anti-RH agglutinin. When this agglutinating substance was tested against rhesus monkey red cells, it caused clumping or agglutination. Man, they are really testing my tongue today. This was the expected result. When the anti-RH agglutinating serum was tested against human red blood cells, however, it caused agglutination in 85 of 100 white individuals tested, but not in 15 of the 100. Thus, of 100 persons tested, 85 were RH positive and 15 were RH negative. Further studies showed that at least 95% of all blacks tested and 99% or, or more of Native Americans, Chinese, and Japanese were RH positive. 
Further developments in this field changed the entire comple complexion of transfusion therapy and of studies of deaths in the newborn caused by so-called erythroblastosis fetalis, hemolytic disease of the newborn. It is now essential to test all persons before transfusion for the RH factor. If this is found negative, RH negative blood must be given, lest reactions take place. Um, this is, of course, why O negative blood is considered the universal donor and AB positive blood is considered the universal receiver. Likewise, women who are RH negative are vulnerable during pregnancy and their newborn children may be subject to hemolytic disease. By the law of averages, a person who is RH negative, or a woman who is RH negative, 15% of white women are, usually marries a man who is RH positive. 85% of all white men are. The child of such a union is usually RH positive, the RH factor being dominant. The de developing fetus in the mother's uterus apparently discharges some of its red cells into the mother's circula circulation. If the mother is RH negative and the fetus RH positive, the mother may become immunized against the Rh-positive cells. This happens in about 1 in 20 cases in which the mother is Rh-negative and results in the formation of an anti-Rh substance. Some of this material may find its way into the circulation of the fetus. The reaction of an anti-Rh agglutinin with Rh-positive cells may lead to agglutination within the baby's circulation, and thus to a serious hemolytic anemia, erythroblastosis fetalis. The baby is born severely jaundiced and anemic. These concepts, originally enunciated by Philip Levine, serve to explain at least 92% of all cases of hemolytic disease of the newborn. The newborn baby is watched very carefully during the first hours of postnatal existence, and preparations are immediately made for the appropriate type of transfusion therapy of the newborn. Should the cord blood give a positive Combs test, indicating the presence of harmful antibody, preparations are quickly made for an exsanguination transfusion, uh, exsanguination being the removal of blood. It is advisable to use Rh-negative blood, which cannot conceivably be attacked by any residual anti-Rh serum in the baby's blood. Likewise, the mother who already has anti-Rh agglutinating substance in her blood should receive only Rh-negative blood by transfusion if she needs it. Obviously, now we have the Rogam shot um, that pretty much solves this problem. Um, but it was a pretty pretty serious concern, and it does still happen occasionally um, in animals. I've seen, uh, I believe it was a horse on like the Dr. Pole show or whatever on TV that had this issue. Um, I will say, uh, where I said blacks, this uh, uses the Spanish word for black. Um, and I believe by that they are referring both to African-American and um, Afro-Caribbean populations that would have been in, in America at the time and not necessarily uh, people of purely African descent. 
And so that 5% of the black population that does have RH negative blood probably derives that from European ancestry, um, just based on American history. Um, I'm guessing that those are American numbers just based on the ethnicities, ethnicities given. Um, but obviously it doesn't reference, uh, Hispanics, um, or, uh, like, uh, actual, uh, like South Asian Indians or anything like that. So I'm not sure what the numbers are, uh, for those populations. Okay. So I did a little digging on the genetic front. As it turns out, rhesus factor does appear to be genetic and extremely complex, actually. Uh, like a eye color, it is governed by many gene loci. And actually, there are multiple rhesus antigens, at least five of which interact as part of blood phenotype. Um, if I had to guess, the apparent malleability of the rhesus factor may be caused by substances that degrade our DNA. For example, my current best guess as to the cause of my own mysterious illness is vaccine injury from the Gardasil shot. It's possible that the same chemical ingredients that caused my illness also damaged my DNA. It's something I won't really know unless I have a kid with rhesus positive blood. Um, so I probably will never know. Even if I got some genetic testing done, there's no guarantee that the cell sample would have my original DNA and not the damaged DNA. I also don't know enough about um, my dad's pedigree to determine if he is homozygous or heterozygous. And it's also possible that I was never a positive. I'm not going to discount that. But honestly, I'm far more likely to believe that I switched timelines um, than my mom got a Rogam shot for nothing and I suck at biology. Statistically speaking, I think it's more likely that I switched timelines. It's really not on my radar, radar as a possibility. For some of the other cases, I would say there is a distinct possibility that people are mistaken about their blood type um, or even their parentage. I quite distinctly look like my father, uh, tall with gangly ape arms and giant feet. So I am at least spared that rodeo. <laughs> I'm definitely his kid. Um, so ultimately, I do still think rhesus factor can change, but I think that says more about the environmental damage to which we are subjecting our bodies in this artificial reality than it does anything specific to rhesus factor. But I do find it interesting that rhesus factor seems to be more malleable than um, true blood type being AB, AB or O. Um, perhaps that has something to do with the... Uh, location of the um, rhesus factor versus the other aspects of blood type, or it's also possible, because I didn't look into this, that the other aspects of blood type are even more complex than rhesus factor. An interesting aspect to rhesus factor is that it is found in every other primate. Human is the only one where rhesus negative blood can be found. Um, this brings me back to my first episode on the Nephilim. In that research, I found an article that said, based on the genetic data, it appeared as though 
more male humans were mating with female Neanderthals rather than vice versa. Rhesus factor may be one explanation for that. If the original humans were rhesus negative and the Neanderthals and other hominids were rhesus positive, then any human females impregnated by Neanderthal males would be in danger after the first pregnancy, whereas Neanderthal females impregnated by human males wouldn't have any issues. Given we all supposedly have some Neanderthal DNA in our genomes, it's not unreasonable to think that the dominant rhesus-positive genes were derived from Neanderthals and or some other hominid, whether it's Denisovans or what have you. That brings us back to the passage in the Bible where the sons of God mated with the daughters of men. While I don't think that offspring would have been the Nephilim, see first episode, there clearly was some boinking going on. I am inclined to agree with Rabbi Schubert Sparrow that at least on some level this could be a reference to human men mating with Neanderthal women. Then again, that would mean the entire population we now understand to be human is actually half-ish breeds, hybrids. Um, that means that there would be no children of God left, which does not seem to align with the religious and mythological traditions. If we go back to my proposed explanation from the Nephilim, the sons of God could have been a royal rhesus negative bloodline that took non-royal rhesus positive wives. There certainly is a lot of reference to foreign wives with foreign gods in the Bible, so maybe that ties together. Without knowing where the rhesus factor came from, though, it's hard to expand on possible biblical commentary. As far as I can think of, the best way to track where it came from is to track where it is. Statistically significant rhesus-negative populations exist among the Basque, the Berbers, particularly in the most isolated communities in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, the Scotch-Irish, particularly Western Scotland and Northern Ireland, the Walser Germans in the Swiss Alps, and smaller communities in Norway, the Netherlands, Catalonia, and Ethiopia. Generally speaking, these are either European or heavily European-influenced communities, and they are also almost all sea-adjacent communities that could easily be settled by those on, say, an exodus. Did rhesus-negative blood spread across Europe by way of the Hyksos people? Am I grasping at straws, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole? To look deeper at this, I want to focus in on the Basque. The Basque have the highest rate of rhesus-negative blood types. They also have murky origins, we'll say, uh, with a language that is distinctly not Indo-European. If we can track the origins of the Basque, perhaps we can shed some light on this rhesus factor mystery. Every once in a while in research, you stumble across a real gem. I'm reminded of a story Laird Scranton tells where he was quite stuck in his research on the Dogon because he needed a very specific text that he couldn't find. In an episode of Kismet, his relative, who had a habit of unmailing his unwanted items to other relatives instead of taking them to a charity shop, mailed Laird the exact text he needed. Not only that, but when Laird called to thank him, he didn't remember mailing the text or even owning it. 
My story is not so fantastical, but I did find a gem of historical insight in a 19th century book about dogs. Seriously. It's called Scotch Deerhounds and Their Masters. It was written by George Couples and was published posthumously by his wife in 1894. I want to read for you directly from this book. The first thing that we are going to note here before we read through this, though, is that he's going to mention the Iberi tribe. And these were people that would have been settled in the Black Sea area. Um, But it's important to note that Iberian is also the name for the peninsula that has Spain and Portugal on it, Spain being the location of the Basque settlement. By far the widest circuit, and apparently the first of all among their prehistoric migrations, was taken by the Iberi, those other side tribes who inhabited southward along by Armenia, and who seem to have early overflowed through Asia Minor. In fact, a period very long before the beginnings of any definite tradition that has reached us except from Hebrew sources or even earlier than the existence of any Hebrew family whatever. They doubtless so began that intercourse with the first of maritime trading races, the Phoenicians, which is an unquestionable fact in Iberian legend. Hereditary Gallic antipathy toward the sea appears thus to have been lessened in their case. They hold a most pertinacious tradition of having, along somehow with the Phoenicians, been in Egypt, where they indeed, fancifully enough, placed their national springhead. As everybody nowadays is aware, a considerable addition to the antiquity of man becomes requisite on the ground of Paleolithic discoveries, though in reality not so much from the mere Stone Age calculations as on account of the margin due to Egyptian progress in the arts and in social matters when first made known through Jewish or through classical means, and due also to the evident physiologically marked distinctions of type among men at the early age represented by Egyptian monuments. The Duke of Argyll, than whom no abler arbiter has ever yet stepped into the arena between zealous orthodoxy and violent anthropologists, has well shown this, at the same time most most weightily rebutting extravagant demands of some advanced thinkers. Pardon, my brain is not wired for 19th century talk. He is supported by experts like Mr. Stuart Pohl, to whom may be added Canon Rawlinson, Professor M. Mueller, and others too numerous to specify. His grace seems, however, to lay overmuch stress on such requirements as are brought up by the divergence of language, the blackness of Negroes, sorry, again, 19th century, and the fixity of type in animal species as represented on prehistoric Egyptian monuments merely noting that the Duke apparently sanctions the unfounded common assumption that Adamic man was white, we must point to an essential circumstance connected with animal species as depicted on early Egyptian tombs, which are the principal authorities in question. 
Chronologically, the gist of what can be ascertained about Egypt is that some 800 years can be added according to the computation founded on the Septuagint version of the sacred scriptures, which would fully allow for anything remarkable about Egyptian civilization during Abraham's time or in the subsequent reports of Herodotus. Much emphasis has been placed, as by ourselves, in the preceding chapter on the figures of great greyhounds and similar hounds among the hieroglyphic delineations. These certainly cannot be made too much of for our purpose. The customs and superstitions of Egypt in this reference are not to be mistaken. They ascribe a referential importance to the species, or some variety of it, such as is best seen from the fact of there having been at least one sacred city thence named, also of the priests wearing black canine masks when they embalmed the dead, and of the hieroglyphic for a judge being a dog near a royal robe, says Bishop Warburton, for they had a superstition that a dog, of all animals, was alone privileged to see the gods, and it was an old custom for the judges to behold and examine their kings naked. Note here, just my brain working, that um, I would not be surprised that all of this dog imagery is actually a reference to Sirius, the star, because Sirius was very important in Egyptian culture. Anywho, Yet notwithstanding these and countless other signs, there was a previous period, apparently extending back as far as their utmost records go, during which they do not seem to have known anything at all about the breed we have in view. The greatest authority on the pyramids and everything connected with them, Professor Piazzi Smith says, in the earlier tomb paintings, they are seen to have been striving to domesticate large antelopes for oxen and hyenas in place of dogs. These supposed hyenas being countless, the Kinhaini or Hyensafage of French naturalists um, from Southern Africa, trainable hunting canidae, variegated, with erect ears, probably only four-toed on all their feet, like the hyena, and supposed by Gordon Cumming to be a link between that animal and the wolf. The early absence of any true hound from their profuse pictorial representations might of itself denote that the prominence afterwards given to pure greyhound forms had been due to an imported breed. Pause. My brain just had a thought. I wonder if those weird animals that they're trying to talk to talk about is the African painted dog. Anyway. No national character was in truth more anomalous and mixed than the early Egyptian, though so much has been made to turn upon its extraordinary advancement in prehistoric times. Now we find that just about the era above referred to to, there took place the singular event in Egyptian history which has perplexed its annals in a marked degree, namely the invasion by the Hyksos or shepherd kings, who suddenly overcame northern Egypt and remained for about 500 years, covalently with other dynasties. I don't know that word. They are supposed, so we are told in encyclopedias and by ethnologists at large, to have been either Assyrians, Scythians, Phoenicians, Ethiopians, or Arabs, their name being variously interpreted to mean shepherd kings or foreign shepherds. In short, linguistic erudition has exhausted itself to account for them. 
hieroglyphics, papyri, tomb paintings, cuneiform characters, along with abstruse Grecian lore and obscure Arabic archives, have been searched through in order to supply some foundation for explaining their mysterious advent and scarce less mysterious departure. In conjunction with prevalent views of primordial human kinship and genealogy, all without anything like satisfactory result. A few simple facts, however, that are brought up by our own line of research go far to elucidate this enigma. There are, we think, strong reasons for believing them to have been alliance of an, an alliance of Phoenicians with Colchian Sifts, to wit, with no other than the Iberi migrating southward down the Phoenician Philistine coast of the Mediterranean aided by vessels which enabled them to transport their people en masse whilst part, in all likelihood, marched abreast on shore in the usual Gallic manner. One striking confirmation for the belief is that in the root huck or hick, there is no trivial resemblance to the term popularly used by the Kybeals of Mauritania, North Africa, for their shepherd plaid, the hick. And the Kybeals are by numerous tokens identified with the Spanish and French Basques, in whom W. von Humboldt recognized the ancient Spanish Iberians, although more recent inquiries, such as M. Lucien Bonaparte, arguing from almost purely linguistic grounds, are of a different opinion on that point. Passing this question, the Irish, Irs or Iberi themselves, have the fable that their original eponymic founder had married Pharaoh's daughter Scota, and that she brought from thence a wonderful hunting bitch of the dog form, Partholin by name, which in course, <laughs> which in course of time gave rise to the well-nigh equally marvelous, marvelous Hiberian grew breed whose fame is in all the halls of Aaron from Terra downward. I'm guessing that's the Irish wolfhound. At any rate, to the Iberi, can we fairly ascribe the introduction of every true greyhound? Oh, it must be the Irish wolfhound because that's also a sighthound, much like the Scottish deerhound and the greyhound. Um... At any rate, to the Iberi can we fairly ascribe the introduction of every true greyhound stock into Africa, Egypt included. One notable Celtic trait, marking every division of the race more or less, should here be remembered. Their innate propensity to represent favorite objects, whether by depicting them in colors or by chiseling them in relievo, on the most suitable and permanent materials at their command, their own bodies often served serving the best purpose when other convenience failed. As the Latin poet Claudian has has said, I guess is what that's supposed to say. Um, as the Latin poet Claudian has said, feroque notatus perlegit exsanguis picto moriente figuras. Um, so that would be talking about the famous Pictish tattoos that are actually kind of controversial. Hence, there is ground for supposition that they showed an example to the Semitic or Turanian Egyptians in delineating the large mountain greyhound with that technical accuracy, which is so remarkable on the Theban and other archaic sepulchr sepulchral monuments. In this view, we have another link between them and the Morocco Kybils. 
among many of whose clans, the women not only wear the hick or plaid, but are in the habit of painting their legs and arms with animal figures. These same Kybeals have often yellowish ruddy hair, whence some authors supposed them a remnant of the Vandals. Here, I want to interject that um, in his work on the Hyksos, um, the famous at this point on this podcast, Ralph Ellison has, have Ralph Ellis has um, suggested that red hair would have come from the Hyksos Pharaohs and that Jesus downstream of that would have had red hair. The Hyksos in process of time left Egypt. According to the Egyptian historian Manetho, they were expelled being guessed by some writers to have returned North toward Phoenician and Philistine Syria Though many considerations lead to the view that they embarked deliberately from the mouth of the Nile in Phoenician fleets, which were engaged in founding the Carthaginian Empire West in Mauritania, Morocco, also in Sicily, and ultimately in Spain, Western Iberia. Most probably having found the Egyptian climate and territory unsuited to a continuance of those pastoral and hunting pursuits, which could be fully carried out over the Atlas, Great Atlas Range. The very weather that bore off the main fleet may be inferred. For, after the expulsion of the shepherd kings, the Egyptians are known to have periodically commemorated the deliverance by sacrificing to Typhon red dogs, oxen, and red-haired men. Typhon being, we should think, from time immemorial, the name for a deity of hurricane and tempest. That shepherds were thereafter an abomination to the Egyptians is well known, and very probably it was as a sign of their abhorrence to the, uh, that. It very probably it was a, as a sign of their abhorrence that the name Berber, vernacularly belonging to the Kabyles, has become classically familiar in our word barbarian, and hence carried into Greek use. A modern ethnological writer says the Iberians of Spain appear to have had their origin Mauritania, but to supply the missing link of their migration from the Upper East, namely from Colchis, we find among them in North Africa what is carelessly styled, styled by manualists and anecdote collectors, the Arab Greyhound, Sloigui of the Sahara, which in reality belongs to the Kabyles. It is of this breed that Mr. Darwin speaks as follows. The most ancient dogs on Egyptian monuments of a date estimated at between 1400 and 2000 BC resembles a greyhound and a closely allied variety still exists in Northern Africa. For Mr. E. Vernon Harcourt states that the Arab boarhound is an eccentric hieroglyphic like animal such as chops once hunted with somewhat resembling the rough scotch deerhound their tails are curled tight round on their backs and their ears stuck out at right angles a modern newspaper account says a magnificent slogui arrived a few days ago from algeria as a present to the emperor louis napoleon from marshal de mcmahon the governor this splendid animal is the size of a young calf, its color jet black, marked on the flanks and front with yellow spots. Only the Arab chiefs possess them. They are used for hunting, their speed being extraordinary, and the sheiks refuse the most brilliant offers for these beautiful animals. 
It is to these, doubtless, that Idstone refers to the in the words, I also introduced a fine Morocco deerhound for sporting purposes in English deer parks, which has been to all appearance used successfully. But the last cross has never been actually employed in the retrieving of a wounded stag since that time. The value placed by the Kabyles on this breed of theirs is, is indeed great. Still more to our purpose is one singular technical rule observed among them in this connection, which testifies to their having long bred the animal with strict care. When a slogui bitch has pupped, the litter is never lost sight of for an instant, and the woman, the women will sometimes themselves suckle the young while visitors arrive in troops, the more numerous and eager in proportion to the ref- repute of the dam. Flattering the owner and offering him presents in hope of obtaining a whelp, which such protestations as these, I am thy friend, pray thee give me what I ask of thee, I will attend thee in thy hunts, etc. To all which solicitations, the proprietor usually answers that he will not decide until after seven days, a reservation that has its motive in a very singular idea of the Kabyles, for they say that in every litter one gets upon the back of the others, and if it persists in this for seven days, even a negress would not be accepted in exchange. I guess that would be a slave. Moreover, an odd prejudice causes them otherwise to attach the greatest value to the first, third, and fifth pups, in fact, to all the odd numbers. Compare with this in Irish Oceanic legend, an account afterwards quoted as to Ossian himself exercised his judgment in selection of a wolf grew whelp. The Kabyles called their breed Slogui, from a place called Sloguia, where they were originally produced by the coupling of she-wolves with dogs. At all events where we therein detect the Celtic word ku, great greyhound dog par excellence, as forming the terminal syllable of this name, whereas the real Arab word for this species is keleb, that so far in the foregoing there appears a genuine case of race identification and its topographical following out through reference to the breed described no candid reader will, we think, deny. As regards a main population of Algeria above the Great Saharan Desert, minute statistics confirm what, above has, what has above been deduced. The Kabyles are distinct from the Arab and the Mo- Arabs and the Moors, who call them Kabylia, i.e. the clans. They are also called Berbers. They inhabit the whole of the mountainous country, live in villages of huts, and style themselves Beni Maziganan, sons of Mazig, they are shepherds, graziers, drovers, make plows, guns, coarse metal utensils, and know how to temper steel in swords and sabers, which they sell to Arabs and Moors. Among them are tribes called Biscarines, with the town and district Biscara being one of many indications of their identity with the Spanish Iberians and the Basques. The archaic stone relics of their country, as in Asiatic Circassian colchis, include dolmens, cromlechs, kistvayans, 
and monolithic remains similar to those we have been accustomed to connect with the Druids, albeit present-day criticism disapproves that notion. All these are admittedly prior in origin to the Carthaginian ruins. Add to the whole that Sallust quotes African authorities to prove that amidst a variety of Eastern people who had settled on the North Coast toward the Atlantic, there were Armenians and Persians. If, therefore, the Hyksos, Hick-wearing shepherds, are shown to have moved thus far in company with an animal breed, no way substantially changed from what Egyptian record displays, as their probable bequest bequest at an ancient and uh, at an antique date more than one curious consideration would seem to arise among others there might be possibly there might possibly be inferable as before suggested some approximate decree of measurement de- regarding the time occupied by such migration not only after but also before the said shepherd king era synegetic chronology pointing to a date about 2000 BC at least before the first Semitic Hebrew entered Egypt and allowing a sufficient number of centuries back toward patriarchal Colchian settlement after the deluge would appear to make up the post-diluvian continuance continuance of this breed in nearly its fixed type up to the present day something like 5,000 years old. Not much more, however, considering that canine generations, as compared with humans, must be multiplied by the figure 7 at lowest, making little short of 1,500 stages. And as we... I don't think any of this... the rest of this is relevant. Well, some of it is, some of it isn't. I'm tired of reading it. You get the point. So, now, I know that was long, and could have been longer, but the point of that was we now have connections between all of those ethnic groups that I mentioned earlier with statistically significant amounts of rhesus negative blood, and all because this Scottish guy was really interested in dogs. Never give up on your dreams, kids. One day your obscure research could be podcast fodder for another nerd thousands of miles away. So we traced rhesus negative blood back to the Hyksospheros, and from there back to the eastern coast of the Black Sea, if I had kept reading all of that bit, but it's the Iberi of the Black Sea area. And that's where my research hit a dead end. What happened in the Black Sea area that's so special? I don't know. Is it aliens? I don't know. Is it the Anunnaki? I don't know. In lieu of facts, I instead will bring you a theory from science fiction. Every once in a while, the overlords of true history see fit to leave us an Easter egg in a work of fiction. And since the lines between history and legend are so blurred anyway, who says science fiction can't provide us a valid explanation? In the Marvel Universe, there is a race known as the people of the Black Sea, whose lair is on the eastern edge of the Black Sea, where these Iberi people would have come from. They are telepathic aliens from another dimension known as the Black Sea. And they used to rule Atlantis before having to leave due to religious persecution. If you remember my mentions of the Hyksos pharaohs 
and their religious disagreements with the lower Egyptian pharaohs based on the procession of the equinoxes, then you'll understand why that sounds an awful lot like an Easter egg to me. Well, that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode, or last week's episode, rather. If you have any experiences or thoughts you want to share, please leave a comment on the Substack post. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on the matter and continue the conversation. Um, This week, again, I will be recording not on Friday, um, but actually on the next Monday, because my kid will be out for Good Friday this week. Um, She was out for spring break last week. Um or teacher work day associated with spring break, whatever, it's daycare. Uh, Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. Bye-bye.